Hello and welcome to another episode of Voice of Crypto. This is a podcast where we talk about Web three, crypto, metaverse, NFT, gaming, and everything. And today we have a very very special guest, which I have been chasing yet from almost thirty thirty five days now, and finally I've got hold of him. Everybody knows who's Yatsu, and uh, welcome on on the podcast, Yatsu. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you, Yatsu. So, so I think the the first question which which I ask all my guests is: uh, nobody planned to be in Web three when they were kids, probably because there was no Web three initially. So, so how you got into into Web three? Do you remember that incident slash accident which? Which pulled you towards everything in Web three and how how what you used to do before Web three and then how this journey has been. Well, I mean, I think uh, before Web three and to some extent we're still in the space. Uh, we're a video game company. Animoca Brands actually cut its teeth really as a mobile game company, even in its first iteration, which was Animoca back in two thousand eleven. Uh, and you know, we've had sort of you know previous sort of you know both internet and gaming experiences before that. Uh, and what really sort of catapulted us into the whole sort of NFT space was CryptoKitties. In fact, uh, what happened back in 2017, our studio in Vancouver called Fuel Powered was actually involved in helping sort of construct uh, CryptoKitties a little bit because the co-founder Mick of uh, Fuel Powered was on the board of Dapper. Well, no, it wasn't called Dapper; it was called Axiom Zen at the time, and uh, they were basically sort of you know helping build this thing called CryptoKitties, uh, and that's kind of how how it all started. And then when CryptoKitties took off. That sort of laid the foundation for what eventually would become Dapper Labs, and uh, Mick, who was basically you know uh, sort of the one who was running Fuel Powered uh, and started that business, uh, basically was offered an opportunity to become a co-founder of what would eventually become Dapper Labs, and he he became that and is currently the chief business officer. And you know in that sort of discussion, it was like, okay, fine, you can do that, but we must become publishers of CryptoKitties in the region, and we need to become investors in Dapper Labs. And that was really the beginning of how we got into the whole NFT space. And I think what we saw with NFTs, you know, because you know we're not sort of the classic crypto OGs that sort of got into Bitcoin in the early days or were part of the Ethereum ICO. That's not our background. You know, our background sort of comes from the lens of culture and comes from a perspective of gamers should be owning their digital assets. And we never really had a chance of doing that before until basically NFTs came about. And so that's what got us excited. And then we went all in. And you know, since then, you know, we made, you know, did just build companies. We we acquired companies like Sandbox, and you know, we basically uh, made tons of investments. Uh, today, over four hundred fifty companies. You know, which in the early days included companies like Axie Infinity and OpenSea, of course, Dapper Labs, and Decentraland, and you know, all, all those companies that many of them today are considered, uh, I guess, household names in Web three. But back then, were literally unknown companies. You know, early startups back in the day. Really, really fascinating story, and I think yeah, you are right. Uh, not one of the OGs, but but somebody who's building the whole future. And and I think that's that's a completely good point that you understand your business of gaming, and then you saw that how it it can be built up on on top of it. And we we have now been seeing Animoca brands working with a lot of brands, creating this whole ecosystem. So what what is the bigger idea? What is the thought process by which you are creating this whole ecosystem and supporting all all these games as well? So I think we have to start from the premise first as to what is Web three and to understand why we take the perspective as a company, which I think is still, even though I think it makes sense, obviously, um, for a lot of companies they they still don't necessarily share that same approach because it seems a little untypical, and that has to do with the fact that when you build in Web three, 
you're basically aligning incentives, right? The whole idea about Web3 is that every participant has a stake in it. And in so doing, you have this, this sort of scenario where everyone participates in a network. And so what we, we call this basically building the shared network, right? The whole idea is that when you're in a network, you know, whether this is a closed network or a, you know, in this case, a public network built on blockchain, you know, someone far, far away could be building something and it could be successful or it could have some impact. And no matter where this person is, even if he doesn't have a direct impact on it, um, he still gets to benefit of it because he's helping co-participate and sort of help build this network to the benefit of all, right? So this means that, you know, uh, that means that you're really building like an economy. It's kind of like in, in the real world, right? If you're, you know, if you, if you build a successful business, you know, in your district, then you hire more people. When you hire more people, then these people come in and they need food. That means someone opens a restaurant and then, you know, someone wants to live there. So they buy a house and, you know, and then next thing you know, this entire district starts to light up. Um, but, you know, the, the participants that ended up benefiting from the growth of this business were not actually shareholders in the business at all. They just ended up being in this network supporting, you know, what initially was this business, but eventually grew from that and created these network effects, what we describe as sharing the network or, you know, sharing in the shared network. And so Web3 does this because the data paradigm is a public good. Everyone can tap into it. So whether you're building on Ethereum or you're building on Polygon or you're building on Flow or whatever blockchain you're building on, however you add value to it, just by owning a part of that network, by owning, in this case, the tokens, you get to benefit from that. But also you get to share in the customers as well, right? So for instance, you know, when CryptoKitties became really popular and, you know, lots of people were sort of, you know, breeding kitties, well, some people started making games that would utilize these kitties. And so people started sort of, creating new type of blockchain games that could sort of, you know, leverage those customers. Or if you had a crypto kitty, they'll give you a bonus or a benefit. And, you know, we see all these ways in which network, basically network effects basically start to compound on top of each other and can share with that. So we saw that effect. And this is also the reason, by the way, why we always push for a multi-chain future. Like we never thought of, you know, there's only one chain, you know, one chain to rule them all that thing. So we were never believers of that. We always thought that to be more diversity in the network in order to create and sustain the shared network, which is kind of what we're seeing today. And so, you know, if that thesis is true, um, and certainly we believe that to be the case, then it starts to make sense not only to build one business, but in fact, we have to basically help construct, you know, ideally thousands of companies, which is why we have over 450 investments. Um, you know, because, you know, take an example, like when you invest in gaming guilds, gaming guilds in and of themselves, you know, solo may not necessarily be the very best investment that's out there. However, you know, in our case, we have over 130 game investments. So us investing in many guilds makes sense because, you know, these guilds help all the games that we've invested in or the games that we're building ourselves, whether it's like Phantom Galaxies or Rare Racing or even within the sandbox, for instance, it helps out. Uh, but the other thing, of course, is that when people start to sort of you know, build these guilds, they're actually creating economic activity. And so that means that, you know, rather than looking at whether the business itself creates value through its equity or through its tokens, for instance, actually we care about the economic activity that the guild enabled in the network that is the shared network. Um, and that means that uh, we therefore might even make investments in more than one uh, guild because they can create more network effects, right? As a result, right? So, so we may put a check into the company, but then it creates, you know, maybe millions, if not tens of millions of economic activity. We've already basically succeeded, irrespective 
of whether the value of the business ends up becoming, you know, very large, for instance, right? Uh, and which is why we don't just invest in games. We invest in DeFi, we invest in lending protocols, we invest obviously in guilds, we invest in infrastructure, we invest in a lot of L1 and L2s. Uh, and so that's the thesis. And, and what we look for is anything that can enhance digital property rights, as in NFTs, either through its mass adoption, as in sort of, you know, basically building the networks, or uh, basically uh, sort of um, sort of uh, accruing value in terms of helping construct more networks on top of it, right? Because we believe ultimately, because data is open, because NFTs represent a digital property, you know, businesses will essentially be constructed simply because you own something, which is what we're seeing a little bit today with things like board games, for instance, or land in sandbox. Amazing philosophy and, and thesis, Yatsu. Uh, so, so my my next question to you is: You have been into gaming industry, and you you know gaming. Probably what media has shown in in last few years, gaming is somebody as as so shown as a gamer with a hoodie, uh, you know, playing those high end games. So, so my question to you is: Is what is the, the definition of gaming to you? Because a lot of people still feel that this is. Maybe I, if I'm playing game on my mobile, I'm not a hardcore gamer. So, what is the definition of gaming according to you? And and what what do you feel feel is is, is a gamer is that? Okay, so first of all, um, you know, gamers are no longer sort of the 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 sort of stereotypical example of sort of you know sort of you know. Yeah. You know, man or boy, basically, sort of beer belly, it's sort of you know, no life or a geek type of term. That's that's not true at all. And part of the reason why that's not true at all is uh, not just because you know, to be a professional esports player, you actually have to be pretty fit. Um, is the fact that actually 3.4 billion people actually play games today, and there's only about five plus billion people online in total, which basically means that the majority of the world are gamers. And, you know, uh, the majority of the world do not look like these stereotypical images of people of games. So, so the presumption that gamers are like this comes a little bit from a cultural generational lens, right? For instance, maybe my parents' generation might believe that, or maybe maybe even people in my generation who don't play games, but they're the minority, actually. They're no longer the majority. The majority are actually the people who play games. So that's kind of the first thing. The second thing I would say is that gaming is a culture in and of itself, right? In other words... You know, the things we do in the world of gaming are unique to gaming, but they're pervasive, right? So it's, you know, terminology, uh, sort of, you know, culture, lifestyle, wearing skins, you know, emotes, right? These are actually gaming culture and they came from a digital construct, which leads basically, uh, which kind of leads me up to the third point, which I think is a, perhaps, I, you know, a, a perfect example of the influence of gaming. You know, gaming itself is already a 200 plus billion dollar industry, which is bigger than basically uh, music and movies combined. So it's already a massive industry, but it's also the primary sort of uh, way in which our youth generation, certainly, if not, you know, many other people consume culture. In other words, the way that we learn about the world, the way that we interact with other people, the way that we sort of learn traditions, almost as it were, actually comes from the lens of gaming. Uh, and, the, and the second sort of uh, effect of that, of course, is that because the gaming culture is so strong, it's the perhaps maybe the very first industry that was digital first, that effectively, that basically effectively impacted the physical world. So normally when you think about sort of digital presence, you think of, oh, I'm a physical brand and I bring it online, right? But gaming is actually a digital brand, a digital presence, a digital experience that basically then entirely moves and influences the physical world. If it wasn't for gaming, we wouldn't have PlayStation, we wouldn't have Xbox, there would be no NVIDIA, there would be no sort of, you know, fast GPUs, we wouldn't have curved screens. 
You know, in fact, the iPhone probably wouldn't even be as successful as it was, right? No Nintendo, right? All these things that we actually have today, we can thank gaming for that. But actually, what is gaming? Gaming is virtual. The entire experience sits on something that isn't physical. So, you know, so I would say, you know, gaming is arguably perhaps sort of, you know, the most, one of the most powerful cultural influences or soft power cultural influences in the world uh, today. Amazing, yes. And and so so when you're you're talking about gamers, and I now I understand it's it's not those what we have been seen in 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 media. Uh, which are the geographies where where you are seeing, uh, you know, gaming has has a bigger boom? What kind of age groups which you are seeing, which will lead the next next set of gamers uh, across the world? So I mean, right now Asia is the largest market in terms of gaming, uh, unsurprisingly, because it has the highest population. So what you can really see, for the most part, is that you know where population and of course you know internet and technology penetration is broadly high, you'll see a high proportion of gamers. That's that's universal. But uh, you know outside of places like Japan, Korea, China, Southeast Asia, they're growing very fast. Obviously, the U.S. remains a really big market, and Europe not bad as well. There's some markets that are growing faster because. You know, these are markets where people want to play more games and uh, maybe didn't have access to everything like uh, in the way that before. So this is kind of where the Middle East comes in, right? The Middle East, uh, particularly places like Saudi, have become really interesting. In fact, in terms of ARPU, Saudi is one of the top sort of gaming markets in the world. Uh, but what's interesting is, is that, you know, um, Saudi doesn't yet produce any games in, in the strictest sense. So they're kind of a consumer of games, but it's all part of that culture uh, as a result of that. And of course, you've got places like Turkey, for instance, as well, and other areas in, in, in sort of the Middle East that are sort of really, really big in the gaming. And then even places like India, for instance, right? I mean, India hasn't really sort of created sort of the kind of AAA studios that you know, uh, most people might be familiar with, but in, in terms of the casual gaming side, for instance, and in some of the historical sort of games, you know, India is a big consumer of games and also has sort of a local gaming culture as well, sort of in the cultural context. So you know, again, it's it's uh, it's it's uh, it's present uh, everywhere. Understood, understood. Yet you are also very active on on social channels and you talk about gaming and culture, and and I'm sure you are influencing a lot of people towards uh, gaming and, and the whole culture. So what, what is that, what change is that you're trying to bring through your influence? What is that you want people to understand and what kind of awareness you are looking to create through your social handles as well? Yeah, so I think the, the what I do on social and what I mostly talk about is essentially two digital property rights. And so for me, you know, when I talk about gaming, obviously we have a gaming background, so we talk about that, but it's more about sort of, you know, gaming already is an experience in which we are basically having a virtual existence. We meet our friends in games. We actually have items in games. You know, we, we we buy stuff, right? You know, we have kind of a metaversal experience, if you will. Except the problem is, is that we don't own any of that in traditional sort of Web2 games. Or we don't have sovereignty over identity. You know, when people buy skins in, in games like Fortnite, they're not just buying it because it actually doesn't have any utility. So what are you doing? You're buying it, you know, to create part of your identity. It's part of who you are. It's like buying fashion in, in the physical world. You know, it says something about you. But actually, what happens if the stuff that you buy could never be yours in the physical world? You can only ever rent them. And whoever's created them can decide to remove it. It's literally like your wardrobe could be full and then tomorrow it could be empty just because, right? Uh, and that's kind of what the gaming world is like. And so part of the things that we want to sort of, you know, how it started off Animal is like, hey, that shouldn't happen to you. You should own everything that you pay because after all, we're spending billions of dollars on virtual goods. 
Why shouldn't you own it and have the benefits of ownership? And of course, the other thing, of course, is that when you have the benefits of ownership, then companies can start building basically experiences on top of your ownership. For instance, you know, if hypothetically Fortnite was on blockchain and everyone who had a skin was a form of an NFT, then, you know, we think that thousands and thousands of game companies are going to start creating experiences for people's ownership of these Fortnite skins. And of course, that means not only is it sort of maybe interesting for the skin owners, because of course you have added network effects, uh, but it's also basically going to make the game more valuable as a result of that, because there's more utility for this. And everyone wins in this, which is the whole point about Web3. The alignment of incentives is so strong. But of course, traditional game companies don't do that because they are like kingdoms. They actually control all the data. They control the skins. They control whatever information they have in there. And so they have no incentive to do it because you know they make all the money, shall we say. And so our point in this is that when I talk on, go on socials, I specifically talk about that to try to explain to people why it's so important to own your digital assets. Because you know when you ask them about, should you own your house? Then you know should you own your physical property? Everyone's like, yeah, of course, right? But then when you ask them the question about you should own your digital property, it sometimes befuddles them, right? They're a little sort of like, uh, like what is that? I don't understand, right? Because they, they don't have this comprehension around this. But here's the rub. And this is just in gaming, which is why we're so passionate about this. We, you know, we are the creators of the most valuable resource, every single human on this planet. We make data. And data is this powerful resource that has allowed for the creation of, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Google, right? And all this AI that's out there, like if we didn't give our data, we wouldn't have self-driving cars, there would be no chat GPT, right? No large language models, none of the stuff that we're so fascinated about. But all this data that it's learning from and is creating its value, who does it belong to? It belongs to the platform. And the people, us, who create the value of this data actually never get a penny. It's literally like we're being colonized and we're basically sort of getting, you know, everything extracted from. And then they sell it back to us because it seems so valuable, right? So, so that has to change. And the reason we decided to do it from the gaming lens is because we felt that it's easier to understand. Like if I go to someone and say, oh, you should own your data in Instagram. It's kind of like, oh, what does that mean? Why should I own my photos? I don't quite understand. But if you go to a gamer and you say, you should own your skins, their first reaction would be, I already own it. I said, no, you don't. And that's kind of where the sort of, you know, the switch happens when people start to realize, oh, hold on a second. I don't own this. What happens, right? And of course, then you have capital formation and then, you know, more value is created, hopefully. So, so that's, that's kind of, uh, you know, why, why we talk about this so passionately, because true digital property rights lays the foundation for our own digital self-sovereignty. Absolutely. And, and I, I completely agree with you. I mean, the whole, the whole set of Web2 companies who have built, they have built on our data and as they say, there's nothing as a freelance. So if they're not charging anything, you are the product. You you don't think that it, it is for free. Uh, and, and I think Web3 is, is, and there are a lot of people who, who in Web3 are, are maybe coming towards this whole new set of world order because they feel that data is something which they should own and they should have it. Uh, talking about, you also spoke about utility of NFTs, utility in, in gaming. I mean, why do you think gaming is the first set of, uh, I would say, the lowest hanging fruit of people who will move to Web3 because they see a real utility in gaming as an NFT as well? What, what are your views on this? Correct. I agree with that because it's an easier mental model, right? I mean, you know, you already own or you think you own assets in the game. 
Uh, plus, you know, in games, we use virtual currencies already, right? So, you know, that means that when you start talking about sort of the sort of, you know, things like introducing crypto, it doesn't seem that alien because they value that already. I mean, you know, people go out of their way to try to sort of, you know, get Robux or V-Bucks or any other kind of virtual currency because it's demand. The demand comes from the players that are already in the sort of ecosystems that they've built up, which are basically, from our perspective, like a pre-metaverse. You know where you can build these experiences and you know you have your friends there and you're basically you know buying virtual currency to spend to buy skins and everything i mean that's really if you think about it a virtual economy except it's a closed loop economy as opposed to an open one based on sort of you know um, free market principles which is basically what web3 provides i think the the uh, the important factor to consider though is that because something like two-thirds of the world is essentially playing games it has also the potential to have the biggest impact, right? Because when you look at other industries, there's not that many industries that have, you know, a reach of 3.4 billion people. And there's not that many industries that have a similar parallel to essentially virtual identities. Because what is crypto? What is Web3? Well, they're really entirely digital constructs. So it's, it's a, it's, you need a digitally native champion, shall we say, right? You know, people talk about fractionalizing real, sort of real assets or people talk about sort of making sort of connections with the physical world. That's all valuable and that's all commendable. We should do that too. But it's not as natural, right? It's something that has value, but it's also not as mainstream, right? You know, fractionalizing real estate, for instance, isn't super mainstream in the sense that, you know, playing a game is, for instance, right? So we feel, you know, that's why we think that gaming is a, is, is such a natural, natural conduit. Um, and also people who play games, actually are people who are already digital digital first natives anyway. Yeah, one, one of the interesting questions which I would like to ask all the brand owners, all the founders is what what is the story behind their uh, brand name? So do you remember how, how Animoca as, as a name came to you? What What's the story behind uh, keeping it as Animoca? Well, the original Animoca name was really a virtual avatar builder unrelated to mobile games back in 2006 or 2007 long 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 time ago right and so we had this domain name animoca.com that was the original one and it was kind of this mix of sort of emoticon and anime and you know because it had an anime look um and basically it was virtual avatars that's what it was basically you know virtual identity avatars but it was kind of early 2006 2007 there weren't too many people who cared about that so the project didn't take off and we basically kept the domain name and just shelved it, just sat there. And then some years later, uh, around 2011, you know, we had success in mobile games uh, that spun out of basically our business. And we needed a brand name. And we had this domain name, you know, the .net, .org, .com, which is animoca.com. We said, oh, you know what? That kind of sounds good. And it has a nice role. It sort of rolls off the tongue, reasonably nice. And, you know, back then, getting a unique domain name with a .com is very, very hard. It's even harder today. So we said, yeah, let's do that because nobody knew what our first product was. And that was how Animoca.com started. And then we added the brands to it because we started doing a lot of brand partnerships with big IP, you know, back then, you know, uh, even today, like, you know, MotoGP, Formula E, you know, like Gar back then we had also Garfield and Astro Boy and like all of these big IP brands that we used to make games with. Uh, and that's the sort of genesis story of Animoca brands. So, so there are no brand strategy presentations done for for defining Animoca. It was it was just because you had it, and then 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 it started becoming a brand. Amazing, sure. amazing. Story. And you know, it's 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 funny because 
you know, in, in, and we see this with startups of all, all types is that, you know, the business is the business, but some of these stories, like how is a name originated or so on, are actually quite whimsical and sometimes quite fun. Um, but, you know, they become the brand and, and, and now it's part of the identity and, and you can't change that. Correct. No, I, I completely agree with you. In fact, one of my first company's name was, was also we kept because we just had a domain. So there was no other reason for, for keeping. But then once you've stuck to a brand, then you just build the brand. It, it's, it's impossible to change it. It doesn't matter. Correct. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so yeah, you, you, uh, you, you have been uh, uh, one of the most vocal people talking about Web2 gaming moving to Web3 gaming. And I'm sure you see and you meet a lot of uh, gaming companies here. Uh, what, what are your top three tips which, which you could go, give to somebody who's trying to create a Web3 game or what are some certain flaws which you see which, which you would like to point out to new entrepreneurs who are building up games currently? So there's many, but let's just do a few um, since we don't have enough time, I think, to go through all of them. The first one I would say is that I think the successful Web3 gaming founders who get it uh, and who I think will have long-term success are the ones who understand that network effects aren't exclusive to their game. So this is a very important factor. There's a lot of people who, you know, think about gaming models as, as they just describe Web 2.5. And I, I understand the idea of Web 2.5, which is, oh, it needs to be easy like Web 2, but it needs to sort of have maybe the value like Web 3. But the question then comes to me is, okay, is it Web 2.4 or Web 2.6? Where do you lead? And unfortunately, a lot of people get tempted to go to Web 2.4 because they like to make money like Web 3 in terms of the ARPU earnings, but they want to control the customer like Web 2. But what happens, you know, when you control the customer is that actually the network effects become limited because to control the customer is to control the asset. To control the asset means it becomes permissioned. When it becomes permissioned, it no longer is free to do the things that, you know, actually free assets can do. And then you actually break the whole idea of digital property rights. And unfortunately, we see a lot of that sometimes happen because the temptation is there, whether they lock it into a walled garden or, you know, or whether they actually uh, sort of uh, bridge it into a uh, bridge it into sort of maybe a, a custom blockchain you know, or a side chain that you can't export. Right. So, you know, for instance, you know, like games that are running on side chains is a good example. They are, you know, I, I, you could call them Web 2.5. But if you can't build network effects on top of it, if I can't take the asset and offer a service to a customer to say, hey, you know, you've got this cool sword or you have this cool car, um, I'll make a new game for you. I can have a service source. Uh, if I can't do that, then effectively it's no different than just running, you know, a, a game on a private database, for instance, right? So that's kind of one of the first big ones that sometimes gets missed. And it doesn't get missed by people who are native to Web3. It gets missed by people who are native to Web2, who want to make Web3 games, who are like, hey, it's cool to own something. But then they don't see necessarily sometimes the value that this asset has to be able to travel freely across the blockchain, that it has to have absolute sort of freedom to transact in any which way. The moment you limit that freedom, you're unable to basically derive its true value and its true, true network effects. The second thing I would add is that, you know, coming to the founder, is that you know we think it's really important that the founder has a strong web3 ethos meaning that this person appreciates and believes in creating sort of uh, a shared network believes essentially that the incentive alignment creates more equity throughout this framework and effectively even though they don't have to say it this way believes in a future in which everyone's a stakeholder now this is very important because you know in web3 by virtue of owning tokens or by virtue of by owning nfts you effectively become a stakeholder in the network. 
which is your benefit. Because if you help make the network valuable through your activity, you share in that value, right? That's what happens when you, you know, even, even, even in a very large network like Ethereum, you buy, you buy Ethereum, you're supporting the network by buying Ethereum, but you also get to benefit when someone else, someone far, far away that you never know is building a cool product on Ethereum as well, because now you're part of the network, right? And that's a principle that I think many Web2 founders have difficulties wrapping their head around because they still think in terms of walled gardens inadvertently, even though they're sort of attracted to the idea of digital ownership. Um, they sort of critique that because it's it's harder to build this way, right? You know, you can on onboard people very easily to a Web2 game, but into a Web3 game, because of the fact that you have to have digital sort of a, a digital kind of self-sovereignty because you have to have property rights, you know, that actually means it's harder because then you have to use a wallet, right? And when you use a wallet, you have to sort of, you know, remember your private keys or maybe there's a service that's easier or maybe it's custodial, but either way, you're dealing with a, a sort of a complex problem. So, which comes maybe to my third and last point and then I'll, I'll stop from there. Uh, which is around, you know, understanding, having themselves and appreciating financial literacy. So in order for a Web3 game, or frankly, I think anything Web3, but specifically, let's call it on Web3 games, to be successful, you need an audience that understands the financial world. Because really what happens in any Web3 construct, and Web3 gaming is no exception, is you open up the entire financial sort of infrastructure to the world to see on-chain transactions, trading volumes, whatever. And the game itself doesn't necessarily have to do that. It doesn't have to necessarily even provide the service, but third parties can't because the data is now live and they're creating value into those networks, but they have to be financially minded. You could open, you know, in fact, that's what we did. We opened millions of wallets in some of our early games, but because the gamer was not financially sort of uh, literate, he didn't understand anything about finance. He had a bank account, but he doesn't know anything about the world of money. He doesn't get it. The result is that they would never do anything with the NFT because they don't appreciate it. They don't know what to do with it as a result. So the onboarding must come with a degree of financial literacy. The person who is a Web3 native happens to be also someone who's comfortable with money, right? Um, but in the Web2 world, when you think about the average gamer, particularly in places like the US, they actually know nothing about money. And that's a little bit of a tragedy, but I think that's the opportunity because that leads me to the sort of another sub sub point, which is that if we succeed to onboard people into Web3, then we will have succeeding you know, in, in a mass way, then we will have succeeded to also create more financial literacy to the world. Amazing uh, pointers, that's you. And, and you spoke about financial literacy and, and I think awareness education is, is something which is extremely important for Web3. I mean, I still can't make my mom understand what, what I'm trying to do or what I do. So, so, so that is very important. And talking about education, uh, Animoca Brands has recently announced a 10 million fund for educators. Uh, just talk to us about, about it. What is it all about? What is that you're trying to achieve? What, what is the end goal of doing this kind of activity as well? So, you know, this 10 million fund is related to Open Campus. Open Campus basically uh, is a platform that, you know, uh, with a recent token, uh, EDU, basically ended up uh, creating, I would argue, sort of the biggest Web3 education sort of uh, platform in the world. And in some ways, you could say that, you know, Open Campus is kind of like an L2 for education, not quite in the sense that it's not a separate blockchain, but it's a platform for teachers and educators and publishers in the sort of world of learning and, and uh, to sort of uh, participate in it and grow from there. Uh, and, you know, an example for this, for instance, is what you can do with you know one of their participants, which is like TinyTab, where the teaching content is you know basically released as an NFT. And what's interesting here, 
is that because the content is, uh, you know, basically the content that the teacher is making money from is now an NFT, that person who buys the NFT can then actually own the value of that NFT, including its sort of income stream, then it can promote it and make it better. And, you know, it's actually matching a teacher to the entrepreneurial activity of someone who wants to buy the asset and create value from it. And so teachers who are typically some of the most underpaid people in society, but very valuable, actually now are able to build equity through the content they create every day anyway. And then other people, you know, basically the financial literate people can now buy these assets and, you know, because they're happy to take a 10 or 20% yield. But more importantly, they can actually make the asset more valuable because they're actually able to promote it or they understand, you know, um, how to sort of create more value because they're entrepreneurs or they understand the world of finance or they're very comfortable with money, whatever that is. And so, so that, that's kind of what, what the platform does. And, you know, we launched the first $10 million fund as a way to continue to kickstart the industry. Uh, we were just at ISTE, uh, which is, you know, one of the largest global teacher conferences in the world. And we had sort of this virtual, this physical wishing tree and it was full of people writing letters saying what they would like to get funded. And, you know, many of those teachers aren't asking for big sums. They're asking for just a couple thousand dollars to basically be able to build out a curriculum or content, which they have expertise in, that you think would be valuable. And of course, that ends up becoming publishers NFTs. And ultimately, they're, uh, you know, it fits our thesis for mass onboarding. Because when you think about learning and education, everyone has to do it, right? It's not like a, a voluntary choice. Everyone has to be doing this. And so if we can help teachers understand the value of Web3, then they're going to ultimately teach the world. That's that's really an amazing noble cause which you have uh, picked up the action and and we wish you all the best. As we come to the end of this podcast, really want to talk a lot, but I I'm sure uh, we we have limited time here. There are two hypothetical questions for you. Uh, question number yeah. one is uh, if you could go back in a time machine any any time back in your life, ten years, twenty years back, where would you like to go and what changes would you like to go? And second question is in the same time machine, if you go, if you could go in, in let's say 10 years ahead in time, where do you see yourself, where do you see Animoca brands and, and what change would be building in the whole world? So I get asked this question once in a while. And my answer typically is, at least in the time machine going back, I don't think I would want to go back at all. I mean, I might go back just to have fun and just, just check it out and just sort of make, you know, like, hey, hey I did that, how stupid. <laughs> Right. However, I don't think I would change anything. And the reason why I don't think I would change anything is because I think the outcomes of the past determine our present. Right. And I don't mean this in a butterfly effect way. I just mean that, you know, like, for instance, I could go back and I could say, hey, you know, I should buy Bitcoin, you know, yeah, on, on day one, I should mine it. And yeah, sure. Right. And probably uh, if I did that, knowing what I obviously know today, I'll probably have more money and I'll, you know, be more wealthy and all that kind of stuff. But I also probably wouldn't be doing anything in Web3 like this. I probably wouldn't be advocating for digital property rights because I would have you know, gone a totally different path because you know, I might be sitting on a lot of Bitcoin. Maybe I become a Bitcoin maxi, for instance. I don't, I don't know, right? Um, and you know, I needed to go through the life experiences that I did in order to sort of believe in this vision and create sort of Animoca brands as a business that sort of becomes the champion for digital property rights. And really sort of promoting Web3 because of what it means to own your digital assets. So it means I had to be in gaming. You know, we had to build struggling internet companies. We had to be deplatformed by Apple. That's a story that's pretty well known, right? We had to fight with the Australian Stock Exchange and eventually get delisted. Like, you know, we had to sort of, you know, 
go through very difficult periods explaining to people why NFTs are valuable, for instance, you know, back in 2018, 2019, when nobody wanted to do it. By the way, the people who were most critical to NFTs in 2018 uh, and 2019 were actually people from crypto in particular. And there's an absolute parallel as to what's happening right now between sort of, you know, back in the early days of ERC721 and ordinals today in Bitcoin, which is exactly the same thing, right? You know, everyone, you know, there's a whole bunch of people really excited about ordinals and inscriptions. And then you have basically, you know, some of the OGs, actually quite a few of them are like, oh, this is corrupting the network. This is like rubbish. Why do we need this? You know, because their way of life, essentially, their traditional sort of assumptions about Bitcoin is, um, is, is now being sort of challenged and they don't like that. But of course, just as it has done with Ethereum, it's also doing with Bitcoin. You know, the introduction of culture, of deep culture into, into you know, your, your network forced them to innovate, to get faster. I mean, back in the day, CryptoKitties basically put Ethereum to a halt. That's how inefficient Ethereum was. Today, you know, it's fine. I mean, you know, it's, it might, it, you know, the, the network operates as it should. So, you know, to sort of to uh, sort of answer that, really, I don't think I'd change anything because I think if I did, then um, the outcome would be would would be very different. Um, so that's the first point. The second one, in terms of going into the future, look, I mean, I don't know, of course, but you know, uh, one thing I would say is that once we go into the future. If, you know, I would love to sort of see Web3 become, you know, basically the future of the internet, which is what we firmly believe in. That's what we think will happen. And sort of see our sort of, you know, vision come to fulfillment, which is basically to ensure that, you know, we all have a way in which we have a stake in the network. And I think to me, this is perhaps the most important thing we need to think about, which is that the current setup of capitalism. So we're, we're, we're capitalists, like we believe in the capitalist incentive. In fact, if, you know, if there's no capitalism, then, you know, we can't have entrepreneurial activity, we can't have capital formation, value doesn't accrue, all the type of stuff that we see today that, you know, we would be challenged. Um, and, and, and the problem that we have right now is that capitalism is broken in its current format. Uh, you know, the wealth uh, distribution is, you know, probably the worst it's ever been, right? And there's many macro factors as well, including inflation and sort of, you know, zero interest rates in the early days and all that kind of stuff, all helped exacerbate it. But, you know, the other big reason why this exacerbated is because people didn't invest, they didn't build capital because they were still living this labor lie. They didn't understand that, you know, yeah, you can make money with labor, but you better invest it or do something that actually builds equity for you. And they didn't do it, right? Or maybe they didn't have the luxury to do it. And as a result, they ended up being left behind and we have all these problems uh, that we see in the world today. Uh, and so what we really hope for is that, you know, with Web3, as we increase financial literacy, you know, which we think, you know, children should learn about economics after all, if they can learn algebra, they can learn economics, right? They can learn interest rates and compound interest. It's not that hard actually, right? Um, so, so then we have a, a world that, you know, won't have the same kind of financial abuse. The best inoculation to abuse in a democratic system, any kind of abuse, is education, right? So in other words, if you want to make sure that, you know, there's not the kind of financial abuses that we see in crypto, well, let's make sure that everyone is more financially educated. And then actually we have uh, sort of a self-protective uh, sort of frame of a network, right? Um, and that also means that if we succeed in this, then everyone has a stake in the network, which means that we don't have to worry about a future, particularly anything about AI, for instance, where it's about, you know, what a lot of people are advocating for universal basic income, which to me has a, a very sort of strong ultra-socialist state sort of, sort of tinge to it. But rather what we like to describe as um, sort of universal basic equity, because we as creators of data are actually creating a, a sort of a part of that network already. So we should all own a stake and in, in, in that system, it has a nice capitalist framework because you want to create better data 
so that you can get more value from it, right? In other words, you want to, your equity to be worth more. And if you don't, that's okay. Um, you know, you're still entitled to something, uh, but you know, you're you're not totally left out. So I think I think that's kind of how how we see the construction of that um, sort of those frameworks. That's what we would love to see, you know, ten years down the road. Amazing, Atsu, and uh, thank you for for your time. And I wish you all the best. And and I'm sure we all are looking for Web three to become mainstream, Web three to be the future of of internet. Which which if if not in next five years, I'm sure it will happen next. Ten years, it's it's just a matter of time uh, for for which it will happen. But uh, thank you again for coming on this podcast and sharing your beautiful insights with us. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, and to all the people who listen to this, I'll be back next week with a new guest and with new insights. Thank you very much, and keep listening to Voice of Crypto. Thank you.